0: Well, welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and today is March 1st, 2016, and this is our um, normal monthly broadcast where we we sit down with the president of Greenville Seminary, and he um, takes your questions that you have written in and answers them live on the air as well as on uh, the recording. For those who are listening live, we welcome you to the program uh, this morning and um, just want to give you, uh, as live listeners, a quick update. Uh, next week uh, is our annual Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary uh, a Spring Theology Conference at Woodruff Road presbyterian church that's march 8th through the 10th those who are listening to the recording of this it's we've already had it it's done and you can get the recordings of it if you weren't able to be here um, by simply writing into the seminary um, info at gpts.edu and of course there's always our website confessingyourhope.com and um, utilize that website uh, and there you'll find all of our past archived broadcasts and programs information And other uh, resources. So take advantage of those things in addition to the mobile app and other. Uh, uh, other items of interest. Now, as I said, we're going to be uh, talking with Dr. Piper today. Everybody knows how we do this here. Uh, You, uh, the listener, write in and he takes your questions. He answers them on on the air and usually sparks uh, some great discussion and even feedback as is indicated by our first um, question today. So Dr. Piper, again, welcome uh, to the program. And uh, I'm excited about these questions and uh, I guess we'll just jump right in.
1: Well, thanks, Bill. I think this is probably the hardest set of questions that we've had, which is good. I think it shows the usefulness of the program and the growing uh, popularity of it. Very good. pray. Our Father, we bless you that you are our God and Savior. We thank you for Christ, our Redeemer, for the Spirit who indwells us and is sanctifying us. We thank you for the privilege to study your Word and to labor for its practical application. Well, we ask for light today as we deal with some very important topics, theologically but also personally, and that your spirit indeed will lead us in this discussion,
0: for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I'll just make sure I'm not hearing myself twice. There it goes. Okay, so I stopped it before. It's bad enough uh, we, to have to
1: hear yeah, you once, Bill. It is no, bad, we bad want enough. To hear you twice. You're absolutely okay. right. Okay, so
0: <laughs> now that we got all our jokes out of the way for the morning, let me jump in. Um, a graduate of the seminary, Ross, uh, has written in from San, San Antonio, Texas, and he's following up on the discussion we had on the ninth commandment uh, related to the lie of Rahab and whether it was sin or not sin. But his question is: uh, I appreciated your discussion of Rahab's lie to protect the Israelite spies. Dr. Pipe, I've come to your position on the Ninth Commandment that there exist cases when where someone gives up the right to the truth, and so it is permissible to deceive them. I think the case of lying to protect an innocent life, in other words, the Nazis looking for Jews, is pretty straightforward. How, how would this uh, concept apply to investigative journalism? And then there's some background. A grand jury in Houston recently indicted David... I, I delight and I guess this is his last name, and Sandra Merritt for using fake IDs to gain access to the Planned Parenthood facility when they made these videos of Planned Parenthood officials seeking uh, to sell babies there 's no doubt they deceived these officials about their identity and intent was what they did right Would have been right if they were investigating a slaughterhouse for poor treatment of animals mm. that 's a good way of looking at it. Uh, thanks for doing the podcast. I really enjoyed the episodes. Um, with Dr. Phillips and Dr. Shaw, Good question.
1: Good question, Ross, and a very thoughtful question. It has stretched me. I'll take you to where I've gone thus far with my analogies, and perhaps there'll be further discussion or other people wanting to jump in uh, with feedback on this particular question. The analogy that uh, has come to my mind is that of, uh, in the Bible, the use of spies— uh, which has always been a problem for those who say that there's no lies. But military ambushes or spies are another form of deceit, particularly spies, and carried over into modern times, an undercover officer or military, someone who gets embedded with a uh, an ISIS group, uh, is an American but appears to be a, an Arab. Um, uh, and so we would... I mean, I would say that those uses of subterfuge are proper. So I would think in investigative journalism, at least at this point, with the analogy, I would say that um, what these reporters did to get information on breaking a federal law is no different from a police doing a sting operation uh, or undercover activity. Uh, You know, and I think your kind of tongue-in-cheek would it have been right if they were investigating a slaughterhouse for forward treatment of animals? I think you're right, Ross. I think that if this had been an animal rights case, this couple never would have been in trouble. And the really sad part of all this is they're the ones being indicted while the people that are breaking federal law uh, are uh, going scot-free. So, again, it shows you where, where we are. But It's a thoughtful question and at least where i that's where i am at this point
0: yeah very good question and um one that we still need to keep thinking through but uh yeah <laughs> i was just thinking about that the other day dr piper we were talking with dr Cipioni in our counseling class about some of these uh issues that we're going to face uh, and and one of them is that here we have society losing their minds over the destruction of whales while we slaughter innocent children in the womb on a regular basis and why is that? And it's because they have they don't appreciate the fact that man is made in the image of God. They have devalued that reality. And it was a much longer discussion, but it was good. And and this kind of plays into that a little bit. I think there's a, there's an aspect here where, yeah, if this was an animal rights group uh or something like that, um, phew, it would have been, you know, the, the media would have gone nuts. I mean, look how they went with that lion out in Africa right. and was killed, and everybody lost their minds over it. So, anyway, good question, and continue to... Um, write in these kinds of questions. Our next question comes in from Jocelyn. She writes in from uh, the Pennsylvania. And it's a question related to Galatians 5.14, and the question is, why when Paul in Galatians 5.14 sums up the entire law in a single command, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, and not as one might expect, love God above all else? There's a lot more, but she it's not Well, I needed. think it's that there.
1: it'd be useful to at least... Um, She came across a a book that she and and her husband, uh, Zachary, who's a student of ours, were reading, uh, where this uh, is addressed, how is it that love of neighbor summarizes all that God has called us to do? Mm. The principle embedded in these words, this is the quotation from the book, is incredibly practical and insightful once you see it. It's only when I love God above all else that I will ever love my neighbor as myself. Now, in the quotation, Uh, Jocelyn thought that this was a bit of a non-answer. I'm I'm not sure. I think it is indeed part of uh, the correct answer. And in fact, what Paul is doing here is following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as he interacts with the uh, rich young ruler. So when this man comes hoping to Uh, earn uh, salvation on the basis of his works. You remember what Christ uh, said to him in uh, Luke uh, 18. I've lost my, i broke my good glasses. Um, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So, When Christ is asked what the great commandment is, he says it's to love the Lord God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is a summary not just of the first commandment, but of all ten of the commandments. But it's often when we are trying to use the law in a pedagogical fashion to bring a person, to humble them, to bring them under conviction of sin, it's much more useful uh, to go uh, at them at this very practical level. Second, our Savior says that if you uh, love me, you will keep my commandments. And how can you uh, love God, whom you've not seen, if you cannot love your neighbor, whom you see? And so, um, these commandments are the application of all of God's moral law to us in our personal relationships. And so, uh, they do spring out of love for God. They also are the most easily um, explained in terms of this is what the law counts for, and then in paul 's very practical situation in galatians five he 's dealing with abuse and pride and contempt in the body of Christ, and so uh, he 's applying the law very deftly at that point
0: very good well, thank you uh, Jocelyn, for writing in and um Appreciate you listening to the program as well. And you with your husband, I'm sure, are, right, are both listening um, to it. Now, uh, the next questions, I, I think, Dr. Pepe, we talked about combining. Uh, no, not this one. Not this one. Okay, so we're going to ask this question, um, and then we're going to combine a few that are similar uh, along the way here. So the, this one is related to the Westminster Confession of Faith at the Standards of the Westminster uh, assembly And the question is very simple. Do you think the Westminster Standards should ever be amended or revised? And if so, which parts or sections?
1: You know, this is the, a kind of question that uh, I think is difficult to answer. On the one hand, we recognize that the standards are subject to the exegesis of the Scripture. And if we would come to clearer insight into Scripture— I think that uh, there might be um, a clearer insight into one of the doctrines of the standards. From my position, in terms of the doctrines and the standards, I find no error. So I don't think that doctrinally the standards need to be corrected. They probably could be corrected. I think there's still some language, in, say, in the larger catechism that really is, does not harmonize with the American edition with hmm. respect to the civil magistrate. So I think that those types of activities, uh, if we could harmonize uh, the language a bit more, there's maybe a bit of confusion between the role of Adam and Adam and Eve in, in the fall and uh, communication of sin. I think when you compare the standards with themselves, it's clear what's being taught but so I think there's some places like that that there um, could be uh, clarification. The church at the early twentieth century tried to improve the standards, bringing a chapter on the gospel and and the Holy Spirit and some other things and it really was disastrous and uh, those chapters were all rescinded when they were adopted by conservative American Presbyterian churches, OPC and PCA in uh, particular. Some people have said they like to see a chapter on the Holy Spirit, but I remember a, a article that Dr. Robertson wrote one time where he dealt with all the sections and the standards that deal with the Holy Spirit. We don't need a separate chapter on the spirit. We don't have a chapter on the Father uh, and the spirit is evident and pervasive. Uh, in, uh, in the standards. The other area I th- well, I would like to see happen would be if we could actually get an authorized modern language version mm, mm-hmm. that would go through our church courts and not come from the publisher. I'm tired of publishers uh, changing things and then rest did, of us are expected to jump on board. Did the OPC authorize a modern version? I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, that's their official version is. Right,
0: it's the Same original. as the PCA.
1: So right. uh, I know that in Chad Van Dixhorn's Commentary on the Confession, he puts the modern alongside uh, the uh, authorized version. So I don't know if they have or not. If they had that, then they would be using that one. Uh, I th- just the same way I'm not a fan. I mean, I love the King James. In fact, when I was in Northern Ireland two weeks ago, I preached on a few occasions from the King James and loved it all over again. But I still think the Bible needs to be in the language of the everyday people. And so... Uh, I think the same for the, our hymns. we got some really great hymns. We could change these to use with no difficulty. And then um, the—so in, in the Confession, so I would like to see the, the, the language modernized through an official uh, editorial process. Now, if we could limit it to that, that would be fine. But we—just as Philip Pugh said one time, that we're not a Bible-translating age— mm. Uh, we're surely not a confessional age, and there is so much strife in our uh, conservative denominations that I I would be very hesitant. Now I would think I'd be willing if we could have uh, an editorial committee, and all they were doing was modernizing the language of the confession. I would happily go that far, but at this point, in in my experience, so but don't misunderstand me. I don't think that the standards are infallible. I'm just very comfortable where they are. I think they're serving the church, not just in the United States but all over the world, uh, as they are.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. It comes up every once in a while. You see it discussed in various venues. Um, you know, maybe we need to change this. Maybe we need to change that. And, um, but but really, if if we if we do change it, not just tweak the wording as it were to modernize it which is not really changing the substance of it. Uh, What are we saying about what we've held to for 500 years?
1: let's be careful. Because the standards themselves allow for them to be edited. Uh, And for the sake of our hearers that would not be aware of this, both in the Orthodox Presbyterian and the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, church documents, there's a procedure for uh, Mm -hmm. amending the confession of faith. It's as probably almost as strenuous as the procedure to amend the Constitution of the United States. That's good. But the procedure's there. And nor is anyone prohibited from bringing forth their exegesis and saying, uh, look, I want the press chair to study this exegesis. I'm convinced that at this point the standards are off or could state something differently or add this. And we go through the process, press chair would study it, they would bring it to their convinced, bring it to, uh, to the assembly. What's happened of late with our controversies um, that we're having, republication and federal vision and uh, uh, these other types of things, uh, is that uh, publicly people are simply teaching contrary to the standards, and then um, Complaining when you're pushing them back to the standards and say, Well, we, can you never change the standards? Well, of course you can change the standards, but go about it in a, in a proper manner. Don't begin to teach publicly. pedo communion or republication or um, these other uh, other problems. One, uh, this does bring to mind uh, I would like to see the standards less ambiguous. Now, some people will, Ah, no, they're not. Less ambiguous on the use of psalmody. Mm-hmm. Um, i take that section as to think that we must sing psalms but that we're not to sing psalms exclusively and that was the position of some of the puritans in those days in fact i've been asked to write a, a book on, on that and i'd like to get around to doing that um so if if that's the case since since the, our two denominations the presbyterian church in america orthodox presbyterian church um, officially do not hold to exclusive psalmody then i think that that would be a place uh, to uh, clarify the standards, but again, you got to go through the process, and it's uh, it's hardly worth it, I think, at this point for something that small.
0: Yep. Yeah, we're talking about one word really, and just so those who are wondering what the process is, I can't speak to the OPC's process, but I knew the PCA's process is is, is it's arduous, it's very difficult, but it can be done, and it's three quarters General Assembly, three quarters of the uh After that. First, General Assembly votes, and then it has to come back to General Assembly the following year and three-quarters again. So it's very difficult to do, but it's there because the documents of the standards allow for it.
1: (laughs) it, And is it three-quarters of registered or three-quarters present?
0: Uh, Good question. I'm not sure. Some
1: of our changes are three-quarters. Procedurally. Procedurally are uh, a percentage of those registered, which is absurd because— a third or fourth of people go to the general assembly. Don't go to the general assembly. To go to business. They go
0: on vacation, so they're never in the hall, nor they're in the con- the booths. <laughs> Not that I don't like. Anyway, we can go, we can go out a whole other subject. And and speaking of general assemblies, uh, you know, we're getting to that time of the year where um, the PCA, the OPC, and, and other denominations are thinking about their general assemblies, and we'll probably do something uh, in that vein uh, when those well, we'll days be good. get if we, closer. If,
1: if there's some issues that we know face in each church, to have somebody come in and speak. But let me say. We're going to this year we're going to be at the OPC the PCA Synod uh, assemblies we're going to be at the RCUS Synod the URC Synod the ARP assembly and the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America Synod. So if you're there please come by the table and meet whoever's there from Greenville Seminary and tell us how much you love us and put a $1000 check on the table. Only a
0: 1000? I'm I'm generous <laughs> today. <laughs> He's generous today. All right, well Anyway, it's a good question. It's one that you know, it comes up, like I said, it comes up from time to time, and we just need to understand that it can be done. It's the process that's in view here. It's not that we don't do this by ourselves independently. Um, we're, we're a united church, we're, 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 and, and so we need to do these things decently and in order. Um, now the next question is it's kind of similar um and it, and it we'll, what we'll do I think we agreed we're going to we're going to we're going to put these together um so right. it's about the BCO uh, and this is particularly the PCA book the of church order. The BCO is
1: the book of church order.
0: Right. It's the uh it's the operating manual of the denomination as it were. And um it's one of our constitutional documents in the PCA and um so all officers are 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 held to vows publicly that they will uphold uh, the Westminster Standards, larger, shorter catechisms, and the PCA Book of Church Order.
1: Well, that they find it to be consistent with right. the scriptures. Right, yeah, the, yeah. the system subscription, as, that's correct. Not the same level it, as the it's this, Right, it's... That
0: overall it's consistent Scripture. Right, and, um, and then they have to also note their exceptions, not only to the confession, but also to the BCO if there are some. Yes, you know, certainly the confession. Yes, of course. But even the BCO, you don't have to announce, announce your exception if you have a problem.
1: I think if it's something serious like women officers, you have to. But if it's
0: procedural things. Like semantics. yeah. Well, yeah.
1: It's not, I'm going to address that. Sure okay.
0: Well, here's the question. Anyway, um, if you could change anything regarding the PCA Book of Church Order, what would it be? Now, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you think of the question, before Dr. Piper starts in Chapter 1 and we work our way no, through no, the no, whole no, book. And, and, but this so can open up a, a big... Big can of worms, and so we're we're not. I don't think we're talking about every pedantic thing, but and then the second part of
1: that is: Would you change the process by which a man is licensed? Licensed to preach. That's also right. in the BCO. So, um, yes, I would change the things. The first thing I would do would be get it permanently hard bound. I think it's very dangerous to have a loose leaf book of church order. It makes it all the more easier every year to have uh, multiple. Uh, amendments to the Book of Church Order. So I think from the beginning, in the early stage, new denomination, I have a loose leaf. And for those who don't know, ours is in a three-ring binder. Uh, whereas in the OPC, it's hardbound. Now, I think a superiority of the PC, over the OPC, I think the OPC book is too ambiguous. I was just dealing with an issue lately I was to ask counsel on and I talked to some different OP people and they would agree, yeah, do this differently. But a loose leaf Book of Order is, I think, disastrous. Uh, second, I would simplify the process of church discipline. You can tell that part's probably written by lawyers. Uh, it is difficult to go through uh, that procedure and accomplish a spiritually intentional purpose yep. yep. church discipline. I know it's done in a way to protect the innocent, Are they not guilty? But there's still the appeal process, and so that is in place. And I'll say again, I think our appeal process is superior. Not many places I'll ever say this, but it's superior to that of the OPC. It's just witnessed again at their last uh, General Assembly. The third change that I would like to see is, uh, and it was quite strange when we did it, and it shows you even from day one we were a bit of of a divided group. Our directory of worship only has two binding sections: membership vows and the uh, Lord's Supper, Uh, and 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 so that's why in the PCA again we've got we were all over the page with dance and and merging church and all of these different things going on. So I think that a a directory of worship ought to have much more bite to it uh, than ours does. So those are the three things. Just as I thought about this. Uh, last night and this morning that I would like to see. And then the other thing then, I think that the PCA uh, previous edition on licensure was much better. At the seminary, we labor to get our guys to get licensed by their third year in seminary. Now let me, historically what licensure was all about was a time because the church took more seriously who was in the pulpit. This was to check a man's orthodoxy so he could go into our pulpits. We could confidently put him in our pulpits and let him exercise his gifts, improve them, and test them. Uh, Theoretically, in the PCA, that held true even through the process when we uh, introduced our internship requirement, which I think is excellent. And by the way, the seminary has designed a field education program that enables a person to meet all of those internship requirements, even while in school if he wanted to. But initially then, a man was licensed, and then he was enrolled as an intern. So here is the time to test and improve my gifts, and that was changed a few years ago. So a man can do his internship as simply under care, the general supervision of his home church and presbytery. So in effect, in most of our presbyteries, licensure is a junior ordination exam. Sometimes I've seen this happen just recently in my presbytery, and I argued against it, but they, they were good friends, and, and the man was examined for licensure and ordination at the same meeting. Well, but that's simply a complete abuse of what licensure is really about. If we're if we're not going to have a historic time of testing, then I think we should get rid of licensure. Mm. Now, because of of this junior ordination exam, in uh, many of our presbyteries, the licensure exam has become a theology exam complete. I'm talking about the PCA as well as uh, Bible content, book of church order and a sermon, not sacraments, right, in the first one. Not for licensure, no. So, um, whereas our book is much clearer. The book says that in licensure exam, a man should be examined with respect to his knowledge and views of the Westminster Standards and content of the English Bible. So in Calvary Presbytery here in South Carolina, we've been able to move our examinations to that. So we don't give a full-orbed theology exam we give an examination in the Confession to be sure a man is confessional. So as we put him into our churches, we in the churches can have confidence that he is an Orthodox man. He knows his Bible, and he knows the standards, and he has demonstrated some ability, gifts to preach. So I think if we stuck to the book, we'd be better off. Uh, but at this point, uh, it's presbyteries that really, uh, really mess up. The other problem then is because the book... It's not being followed, and we've had attempts to uh, clarify it on uh, intinction and hmm. a few other things uh, more recently, and we kept being told, well, it's all in the book. Well, if it's all in the book, why do we have all these churches doing it right uh, a wrong way? So if the book's ambiguous, it should be uh, made um, more clear and uh, specific. Now, just in passing, the OPC licensure exam is really much, I think, too strenuous, as many of our friends, uh, and I think they've got overtures to try to deal with this. And so we want to see a man licensed his third year out of our four-year program, but the OPC examination includes his Greek and Hebrew and a full theology exam, a church history exam, uh, and uh, Bible content and the Book of Order. Uh, So, again, it's just an ordination exam, which usually then those things, if a man sustains those things in his licensure exam, he does not re-examined in them for ordination. That makes it even harder to get a man licensed. But then the OPC will say, you cannot put an unlicensed man in our pulpit as pulpit supply. So we have students here in the OPC at the seminary who are invited to go to OP churches and do pulpit supply, but they can't do that because they've not yet met the more rigorous. Uh, so I think both denominations really need to address this issue of uh, of what licensure really is historically. That in itself would clarify a lot of issues. And let's get back to practicing that.
0: Yeah, very good question, and um, it, it, as you were talking about the process, I I, I noticed it, it, I was in Calvary Presbyterian as a ruling elder, many of you know this, and um, the, the track was I was going to be licensed in Calvary Presbyterian, but things changed in God's providence, I ended up being licensed in a different Presbyterian, and what was interesting is the difference, <laughs> it was dramatic difference between the process, though the, the, the core things were there, but the process in general was was different uh, as far as the examinations, and, and do you think it would be better if they standardized this across the denomination? Well, I do. Not necessarily the exam-specific, but I mean the process itself.
1: Right. And, and again, it's the same thing in the OPC. I was recently in, in Oklahoma uh, for an ordination of one of our graduates and talking to another graduate who is in the presbytery there, and this process, um, again, Orthodox Presbyterian churches might be more congregational at this point, even than the PCA, in terms of not respecting what another presbytery does. The licensure, though, is to let a man be in our pulpits. And what I've appreciated, and I learned this from Dr. Smith, is that even as a minister, if I began to labor uh, two or three Sundays a month at a particular congregation of the presbytery, I should be examined as to my orthodoxy and be licensed to be in their pulpits. Once or twice a month or a Bible conference, that's not an issue. And so I I think that there always needs to be a a reexamination with respect to orthodoxy. But if a man has gone through some of the basic in his, of his trials, I see no reason. And so our book allows – it's up to each press how much it will transfer. So I think it would be useful if in both denominations, if the book spelled out more exactly. Of course, here I am saying, this, quit amending the book, and now I'm telling you. But this is the final book. You asked me what I'd like to see changed. So this is the final book that becomes then permanently bound. I
0: yeah, I got asked that question in, in committee. Um, if you could change anything in the BCO, what would you change? And, I mean, I had a ready answer, um, uh, but it was nothing to do with this, of course, but it was something else, and one that came out of General Assembly. We won't go there, but um, one that I, you know, anyway, had to do with the SJC. Anyway, we'll move on now. <laughs> Before
1: the I get the book of Church Order.
0: That's the problem. <laughs> well, that, right. Uh, it was Chapter 13, but, you know, anyway, we could come back to that some other day. Um, I did get a writing question, Dr. Piper, and I'm not sure um, – it's a follow up it, it it well it's 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 kind of a follow up it goes along the lines of the confession the standards the b c o um twitter no it's uh it was a text message actually, so someone's listening live and knows my phone number and um and I'm not sure as I'm thinking about this, if it would be fair to you to actually respond to this It's very recent controversy that came out of Ligonier on the Christology statement. Have you seen it yeah, okay. Do you want to wait and respond to that next month, or do you want Is it
1: growing out of the confession?
0: Yes, I, because do we need statements like this? I Yeah, that's, that's I think that's part of the question. I mean, I have the actual statement in front of me, but I don't know that you've actually seen it. Uh, maybe you have. I, I've i just—this is the first time I've seen it, just now. Um,
1: I, was, I was at a meeting and have seen the statement.
0: Um, and so the— Person asking the question wants to know. He says, uh, "Ask about the role of creeds and who is responsible for producing them." Yeah. Now, that, I mean, that's a good question. We could we could deal with that and maybe stay away from the specifics of the your statement right now until you've had a chance to maybe review it. I don't know.
1: All right, we'll do that next time then, because I do want to be fair. Let me just say that the statement's good. It's not. Good. It's not of a confessional nature. It's simply a way. It's kind of like the affirmations in Niles back after the uh, mm-hmm. scripture, the inerrancy group published their affirmations. The and, Chicago
0: Statement on Inerrancy? Iner-
1: yeah. That doesn't take a confessional ground, so I don't have a problem with the Ligonier Statement. I think it's an orthodox statement. I was at a meeting where we were able to have some input in terms of maybe do this or that, so I've not seen if there have been any revisions made since that meeting. I hope there were. But in terms of Ligonier, um assisting the church by saying, you know, here's some affirmations and denials that we think are very important with respect to this important issue. Now, what they want to do with it, I guess, I don't know what they want to do with it. Right. So we could follow up on that next time. But, but I think the court— I don't have a problem with uh, a study group coming out with affirmations and denials that don't have creedal uh, standing— but can help the church identify issues and help churches identify. And we do that in an ordination exam. We do it uh, in a uh, – it, it all should flow out of, out of the Scripture and the Confession.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the concern of the, the listener is just, you know, who, who has the primary role of developing creeds?
1: Uh, but it's not a creed. That's Yes, I would agree. Only the church should be developing creeds. Well, okay. Westminster Assembly, of course, then you get the whole political thing. It was the church called to do that by the – and most long- of the ministers there were members in good standing in the English church. Uh, the synod was called by the magistrate, which they concurred it was right, and then we changed that in the state. Right, so, right. Um, but so the church should produce creeds. Or napark, maybe you could have a multiple church thing, but I don't think that... In the same category as the Chicago Statement or inerrancy. I think that is fine to say, here's some light to help guide the church. But we can follow up on that.
0: Yeah, let's do that, and and I'll move it to – I'll table that actual statement itself to next month and it gives you a chance to look at it and
1: but i would encourage if it's now if it now is available public i would encourage everybody to read it
0: yeah it is public um it's,
1: it, it's a good statement
0: and, and you know i can give the link it's dot is the the link and mark jones has written a review on it at rough 21 so there's you know you can get both sides or whatever i don't know i haven't looked at it so i'm speaking completely <laughs> i mean i'm flying by the seat of my pants right here I, this is the first i've seen it so um Anyway, that's why I asked that the way I did it and want to blindside you and make you come out public on a statement that you're not really sure about yet. Well, I saw
1: the first edition of it.
0: Yeah, okay, very good. All right, so we're going to press on. Um, We've dealt with the BCO uh, licensure issue. Um, Here's a question uh, on women counselors. Um, Do you think women counselors should be utilized in the church, and if so, what parameters would you place on them?
1: Well, I think that the Apostle Paul uh, answers the question for us, and in uh, and, and Titus two, verse three, older women likewise should be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that, so teaching what is good, so that they may encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Mm -hmm. So I believe that uh, women have a particular role, women have the gift of teaching or exhortation, have the particular role in the church of uh, discipling other women. Uh, One of the things that's important to keep in mind that uh, in the church, counseling really is discipleship. It can be remedial discipleship, it can be long-range discipleship, but it's... uh, helping a person apply biblical principles to um, their situation. So when we see here that women have um, not just the gifts but are instructed by the Apostle Paul uh, how to use those gifts, then I think we have uh, spelled out for us how a woman can uh, be an effective counselor in the church. In my own ministry, uh, I have encouraged uh, women in the church who I saw or the elders saw gifts, to study biblical counseling. And we have used women like that in some ways in particular. It can be a single woman uh, or a married woman who has particular problems, not her husband, uh, where you need a couple together, but some things she might be dealing with. Uh, It's much better to have a woman counseling her uh, than a man. We just have had a, a situation here in my presbytery where, Uh, A man counseling, a pastor counseling a woman um, just gotten out of hand. So uh, it's good to have that. Um, Two places I also used, couples. And so if you're going to use couples, it's good the woman as well as the man are are trained. Um, One is in in premarital counseling or discipleship. I trained couples to do that, so I wasn't having to do it all myself. And it's very good for... uh, for women uh, in that process to have a woman there and a woman's ear. And even in marriage counseling, um, a couple often can. So it doesn't have to be a man and wife. I mean, it can be uh, a man in the point of the church, one in the point of the church. But they're working together as a team to now work with this couple. woman can be trained in that fashion. Now, the church we attend here in town has an excellent lady counselor, and she's quite useful with um, helping alongside the ordained minister who does the counseling as well as working with, with women. So I think it's a, a proper use of women's gifts, and
0: I think it can be very edifying for the body of Christ. Mm. Just to follow up on that, um, those who don't know, we have a, a two-week intensive counseling program here at the seminary. It's It's really two semesters crammed into <laughs> two weeks, um, and, and, and some of these topics come up, obviously, in discussion and, 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 and so forth. But um, the question I have related to that is, if it's formal counseling, I'm not talking about uh, informal discipleship, lady-on-lady lady work, That okay, formal, uh, however you would, would want to define that. How much involvement should the elders or the session or the pastor have in in that process, whether maybe not directly immediate, but how much should they know and be involved?
1: I think it would be with either. Well, if the church has an associate pastor or a ruling elder doing counseling, he needs to report to the session as well. It's not because she's a woman. So that the counselors need to... uh, Let the elders know, you know, here's where this case is. If there's sin involved, of course the elders must know about that. Uh, But otherwise, so-and-so is making good progress. Here's some of the things I've had her do. As long as you're not, you know, betraying a... um, It's not that a counselor would ever uh, be committed to secrecy, uh, carte blanche, but in the same way, even a pastor doesn't tell a session, everything has come out of a counseling session. No need to, and it wouldn't really be right. So, but a general accountability, I think, is important. Let me add here, and I said this before on our program I think that when a woman does uh, this type of work, uh, she needs to have been examined by the session A, B, she needs to be using approved material.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for
1: example, when we do our premarital counseling, it's material approved, and yeah. a couple is using the approved material. We do the same thing. And I think it's a very wise thing in today's culture it would be to have uh, a couple that have demonstrated uh, real um, gifts and graces in rearing their children to take a, a young couple when they have their first two, what, during the pregnancy and work through with them both the physical and the spiritual aspects of child rearing, mm. uh, but again using uh, approved material. So I think where you get in danger, and I think we've seen this some. I mean. Uh, Dr. Scipio and I know of cases where was one woman that with whom he's worked in the past, and you know she's gone as far as I'm concerned off the deep end. Uh, so again, we don't grant—I don't grant a theological autonomy, particularly to women, because I this upsets people. But if you just look at First Timothy two, Paul says that woman's prone to deception, yep. and we need to. Uh, protect her in that regard i mean women are not great theologians but there needs to be a safety net put up
0: yep that's a great point and and and, and you're right we have talked about that in the past uh, sessions still have to have so they're still responsible ultimately and have oversight and approve the material that's used and um and, and because that's those are the officers in the church ultimately responsible uh for these matters so um anyway good question and um and we will uh, press on um I think we've weeded out all the controversial ones.
1: <laughs> well, this is the hardest one maybe I've ever been asked.
0: Uh, okay, which one is that? Because I've had to jump around a little bit. No, um, we're
1: right in order. Next one.
0: Um, are we talking about the blended family one? Mm-hmm. Okay. So William writes in um, from uh, San Antonio, Texas. And um, you guys are voting down there today, by the way. I'm sure and, they know that, Bill. And, um, <clears throat> well, you guys are voting down there today. I'm sure they know that, Bill. And so... <laughs> There's a hashtag on Twitter. Never mind. Anyway, the subject's blended family, and uh, it, it's it's kind of a three-part question. Do you want to just read the whole thing? Uh, let's go one section at a time. All right. So here's the question. We are a blended family currently working through a custody case for my 11-year-old daughter, and her biological mother is not a believer. If we are granted primary residence, some advantages— uh, Just a
1: second. Uh, primary residence means that they won't have complete custody, but the daughter would live— With her father and his wife except for every weekend
0: yeah very important and and dr pipe would know that because he pastored in texas so um he would know these these little details i wouldn't have had a clue (laughs) what that meant anyway if we are granted primary residence some advantages would include ability to have our daughter homeschooled as she is now or private schooled more consistent opportunity for her to be included in family worship however i struggle with the fact that weekends would still alternate meaning our daughter would miss every other lord's day I realize that in a fallen world and because of consequence of my past and uh, there is no perfect scenario here, but I have a couple of questions. Okay, so we're going to take these one at a time, right? All right, should we think of, c- the first question, should we think of compromising primary residence in exchange for having visitation every Sunday if our daughter's mother would agree to such a thing? Or do the advantages of having the greater amount of time with our daughter outweigh the missing of every other Sunday? Uh,
1: yes, uh, thank you for a very sensitive question and one that we in no way would want to answer in in any abstract or or caustic manner. Uh, Mm. uh, I agree with where you are. Primary residence, I think, is much more important. As much as I love the Lord's Day, uh, to have uh, your daughter in your home, uh, basically, what would it be, 90% of each month, Um, by far, uh, and so, yes, she, she's going to miss two Lord's days a month and we recognize the benefit of the Sabbath and the means of grace, but she's got the two other Lord's day as well as five days a week, uh, in, in the Christian covenantal environment. And so by all means, if you can keep the, um, uh, primary resident, uh, thing, uh, uh, keep it. Uh, we actually have a student in um, Kansas, and I would be glad privately to uh, uh, give you his email. I think this is his situation, and I've been in his home. His daughter is walking with the Lord, uh, but I think that maybe twice a, a month she is not at Lord's Day of service. I don't know exactly how how they work it out, but um, we get down to the third thing. I think you know he probably would has thought a lot about this
0: all right and then the second question um how should a believing 11 year old in this situation respond to her mother's actions on the lord's day in other words taking her to the rodeo out to eat birthday parties etc does she quietly submit or respectfully ask not to attend or refuse somehow
1: so only in texas would the first thing on the list be going out to the rodeo but rodeos really are fun so (laughs) um (laughs) talked to my wife about this this morning as well and uh, i think we are on the same page i think she uh, respectfully asked not to attend and to be able to go to church Mm -hmm. no fits and no cajoling just say you know i'm i have these convictions mother would you please respect them And, you know, you cooperate in that. So if they want to go to the rodeo, you can say to your ex-wife, you know, even if it's you you would have her Friday night, but say, look, why don't you take the rodeo on Friday night? So you can kind of bend over backwards to meet some of these things uh, as well. So you can give up a Friday night to save your daughter a Sunday uh, like that. The parallel that came to my mind would be that uh, in the early church, there would have been slaves who would have been by the act of slavery uh, bound in things to break the Sabbath. <laughs> and it becomes at that point, I think, a deed of necessity and mercy. And so uh, I think that's the, uh, uh, the parallel. Uh, your daughter, in a sense, is a slave uh, in that she is not of her own freedom until she's, whatever, 16. Uh, I don't remember the exact law. Um, so respectfully ask, but don't refuse, and don't quietly submit Without asking, and then try to you try to work out, uh, be proactive, and you try to work out sometimes uh, where uh, you could give up a Friday night or, or make sure that they've got Saturday to go to the radio and, and things like that.
0: And then number three, you've already touched on a little bit. Do you have any other resources that perhaps discuss the issue of blended Christian families?
1: Well, I had hoped to uh, talk to Dr. Scipione before we went on the air, and he wasn't on campus yet, but I will. Um, if he has resources, we will send them on to you, Bill. And, um, but I also will send you, uh, uh, the other young man's, uh, email and you can, uh, write him and see how they've dealt with some of these things. Okay.
0: Well, thank you for writing in. It's, uh, um, good to get a pastor's perspective on some of these things, especially one who's ministered in, in Texas. Um, and, and,
1: well, I'm not sure the location makes much difference on this one. It's it's really the the more time you can have with your child, the better off you are.
0: Yep. Okay, we're let me see. I'm, I'm okay.
1: Got nine I think, minutes. I eight
0: think minutes. we're good. Um, let me jump to... Let me go, I'm going to go to the bottom question. Good. Considering the time. <laughs> Say this next one. <laughs> That's fine. We'll come back next month and deal with the company. We were on this... Dr. Pipe and I were on the same wavelength. That's not normal, at least on the program. <laughs> anyway, all right. David writes in from, uh, from England uh, over the pond. And he has a question on family worship and the regulative principle of worship. And it's very simple. How does the regulative principle of worship apply to family worship? I think most of us do things in family worship that ought not to be done in corporate worship, such as discussing passages from Scripture or catechism questions or having women, children, and non-ordained men read and pray. Excellent question, David.
1: Um, We have to distinguish, I think, between content elements, so to speak, and… Uh, method and, and I make this distinction in my worship course I don't think that we should do anything in family worship That we um, Should not do in corporate worship So the method can be different So we we can catechize in corporate worship We can recite catechism together in corporate worship uh, So So uh, We pray, we sing, we read Scripture, and we talk about it, and we can catechize. Now, there are things that in corporate worship, as you rightly note, that may not be done in family worship or private worship. Sacraments, for example, uh, should not be done uh, in any kind of private um, capacity. Uh, Other corporate acts of uh, assurance of pardon, uh, the greetings and salutations and uh, calls to worship and, and, and things like that. But in our family worship, we need to stick to the scriptures. So we shouldn't have a candlelight service in corporate worship, and we shouldn't have candlelight service in family worship. We also might want to distinguish between instruction times with our children and worship. And so we're going to we we, we will have family worship. We're also going to be teaching them much more broadly uh, than than family worship, so we sing psalms and hymns, we read scripture, and uh, father, our father's not there. Our a mother, single mother family, mother will ask questions, and the children can answer those questions. That kind of interaction uh, would go on in in family worship, uh, and then with respect to women and children praying. I think it's very important, and I make. A, I think in family worship there is that element of procedure that is different from corporate worship, and I apply that to the prayer meeting then of the church. I take the church's prayer meeting to follow the pattern of family worship, which is less restrictive in terms of who participates in a singular manner, and corporate worship where only approved men. Should lead in prayer or read scripture, so that even you know even if it's, 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 the father's not a, a believer or as I said it's a single parent home led by a mother, then she should be doing these things as well, but we don't introduce the innovations in family worship that we would not want in in corporate worship is, is the principle I'm trying to uh, trying to establish so I hope this uh helps. Uh, David, for example, there's some people who sing psalms exclusively in corporate worship who will sing hymns in family worship. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, for the sake of the family, they do that. But uh, there's others that are very consistent will only sing psalms any anytime that worship is uh, attached to it. I think that's a matter of how people work out the principle and apply. There's obviously a difference in what we're doing in family worship and what we're doing in corporate worship. And there's a degree of, shall I say, reverent informality that would not be in uh, corporate worship. I don't like identifying corporate worship as formal in contrast to informal, but there is a formality in corporate worship that is not required in family worship because we're working with our little ones. And... Uh, it should be different how we are going to lead them and instruct them and teach them to pray this is where we're going to uh, teach them to pray let them learn to read scripture out loud answer questions ask questions so I hope that's helpful and not just more confusing
0: yeah very good very good question and um, encourage that you're doing family worship Obviously, or at least you're thinking about it, so and and that's very important, regardless. Um, now that we've thoroughly warmed up, Doctor Piper, we're, we we do have one question left. I've moved it to next month, um, our next month's discussion, because we're almost out of time uh, for today. But we've thoroughly warmed him up because he's going to leave here in a few minutes, and he's going to go to another interview uh, with. Um, Kevin Bowling. Kevin Bowling. I, I was,
1: which you all can follow. I think it's 89.7. It's his radio.
0: But it's also streamed live on the Internet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. they can
1: get it on the Internet from yep. his 89, 89.7. Is that right?
0: I think that's it. Yep. Just Google it, his radio, it's Greenville, South Carolina. It's 11 o'clock. Not
1: right after here. So it's 11, 11 o'clock.
0: Yep. So if you want to hear more, I think Dr. Pipe will be talking about the conference. The conference. But if you're listening live right now, you can uh, continue uh, listening to Dr. Pipe in the conference. And if you're not, well, that's all been done and it's in the past. Um, also, and- I, either if you're listening live
1: or when you hear the broadcast of this, uh, we're thinking about maybe, you know, trying to go more frequent. Uh, we'll do that as we have more questions. So you generate the questions. We will take the time to uh, create programs. And we're also... Going to be praying about trying to go to a stated uh, a stated time, and if I just happen to be gone that time, then we'll just simply bring in a guest so that we can get more and more live listeners. So these would be some things we're thinking about, praying about, and ask you to join us in, in praying about these things.
0: Yep. And and just so you do know, those who don't know. Uh, it, the program is very simple. You run it. You you write in. You go to the website confessingourhope.com. dot com. The form is there. Fill it out. Send your question. It comes to me. I look at it. I, I, I put it somewhere. Doctor Pipe can then see it, and then you hear it. Almost always. Um, I don't I don't think there's been a question we've, we've got that we've not dealt we've, with a question. Postponed
1: them so I could study a bit more.
0: But right. So it's a very simple process. We two and,
1: postponed today, and they'll be the first two next time. Right.
0: So it's a very simple process. You can also do it through Twitter. Um, got to use, do it in 140 characters facebook. but you know facebook whatever i mean, i try to create as many ways of getting the questions to me at, at to the program as possible but um anyway it's very simple and if you want to follow dr piper on twitter it's a, at jpiperjr. jr uh J. Piper jr all one word as you well know um and uh and i'm william hill jr wm hill jr and uh of course we're on facebook the seminary is on facebook the podcast is on facebook everybody's on facebook <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: <laughs> but anyway, there's
0: just different well, ways of say, getting – it. say
1: go on Facebook and like us because the more you like us, the more we go to the top of the search engines.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. So th- th- anyway, there's all these different resources, ways of getting things out. And if you do listen to the program live, you don't have to be tied to a computer, by the way. There's a mobile app for the software that we use. So you could be listening in the middle of the airport if you'd like, um, or in your bedroom. I don't care. Listen wherever you like. <laughs> but anyway, you have different ways of doing it. So any concluding remarks? We're right just about the hour mark.
1: Well, I think it's time to get past just a minute start thinking about our Summer Institute. We've got two fantastic things point. this summer. Yep. First week of August, Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn is going to be here to do the Westminster Standards and Pastoral Care we often haven't thought about that approach to the standards approach of the standards. That's going to be dynamite. So that's the first full week of uh, August from uh, Monday afternoon through uh, Friday noon. The next week is going to be uh, our kind of uh, biannual uh, Southern Presbyterian uh, theology class. This is the first time that Dr. Wilborn is going to get to teach the class since Dr. Smith now has a fully retired but the neat thing about this and many of you have asked about this and now and i'm saying this now as you can plan dr Wilborn will be in a doing a tour as part of the class of some fantastic south carolina historical sites with lectures built into that as well people have done that tour the students do it every year but we did the tour a few years ago uh, after one of our conferences and it was just you know people have been asking and asking for us to do another one so here's the ch- opportunity this summer. You can take two weeks. You can come down and do both of those classes. You can do one or the other. I've had ministers say, we want more ministerial uh, on-the-job training. This is your opportunity now. And so uh, we encourage you to, to take advantage of these things this summer. And remember the conference. Tuesday and Wednesday nights will uh, be uh, live uh, broadcast.
0: Um, through Sermon Audio.
1: So through Sermon Audio.
0: GPTS Mount Olive is the page. Uh, it'll
1: be a, a video live uh, broadcast. The rest, if you can't come, you'll be able to get the other things fairly soon. You can also purchase um, the CDs or MP3s uh, pretty quickly afterwards as well. If you
0: can come, come. Yep, and and RHB will do the bookstore, Oh and, and you can spend a ton of money there. Or just look around. Put a and,
1: ton of money, and, but get double what you get anywhere else.
0: Yeah, and there's no question. It's a great bookstore. Um, it's a great conference. It's great fellowship Um Friends I haven't seen in a couple of years are coming in from all over the country. And so I always look forward to catching up with people. And, and that's a, a lot of people do that. And but then you also get some great lectures. And it's a very important topic, as we've already discussed at length on this program, uh, especially with what's going on uh, in our culture. So that's what's going on. We have other things we're working on and uh, more guests lined up. And uh, my assistant has informed me of the lineup, but I don't think he's right. Um, and I know he's listening to this and he's probably checking again at this moment. But so I'm going to just simply say this if you want to know what's coming up on the program, because I could be wrong too, um, go to the website confessingourhope.com. There, I have the list there. Um, we got a little out of order. And in case you have noticed, I'm not, I'm no longer uh, including episode numbers in the front of the programs because. I can stay out of that corner in the future. So go to the website, confessingourhope.com, and there you'll get the information up to date as to what is really happening around here, because I have the time don't know. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.